Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. This week, we go all the way back to... Well, early September, when the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and Kwasi Kwarteng, the new Chancellor, took the reins of British politics. It's fair to say that a lot has happened since then, not least the UK economy crashing and becoming a global talking point. So in this episode of The Slow Newscast, a team of tortoise reporters are digging into the details. And they're asking, what really happened in the three weeks leading up to that disastrous mini-budget? I now call the Chancellor of the Exchequer to make a statement. Chancellor. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And uh, Mr Speaker, let me start directly with the issue most worrying the British people today. The cost of energy. We all know what happens next. In the days that followed Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget on the 23rd of September, the bottom fell out of the UK market. Well, as we've been hearing, the financial markets have reacted badly to the Chancellor's announcement, with the pound falling to a fresh 37-year low against the dollar. Sterling slumped. Investors dumped British bonds. The cost of borrowing multiplied. Pension funds came within hours of going bust. And the Bank of England promised £65 billion just to try and calm things down. The International Monetary Fund sent a message to London. In short, it was this. WTF... Kiss Kiss, the IMF. Conservative poll ratings fell to some of their lowest in living memory. I mean, that, that these are not normal numbers. This is a lead the like of which the Labour Party has never seen before. And it's sort of come from nowhere. Tory MPs started submitting letters of no confidence in Liz Truss. She had, of course, been PM by then for just three weeks. And the party conference in Birmingham was a humiliation. And now the lady not for turning has announced a massive U-turn on a policy. This is surely the worst start of any prime minister. It's not over. Interest rates are set to rise. People will pay for these mistakes in their mortgages. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, described this as the moron risk premium. Martin Wolf, the FT columnist and the most respected economics commentator in the country wrote, these people are mad, bad, and dangerous. They need to go. Now the housing market is preparing to fall, economic growth will be hit, the government needs to make a run of cuts to public spending. It seems like the only people having a good time 
are comics and social media meme makers. ...introduced to its new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, who announced that she was gonna get Britain back on track. She just didn't mention which way the track would be going. This morning, uh, the British pound... We all know what happened after the Chancellor spoke. But what happened before he stood up? What happened in those 17 days from the moment Kwasi Kwarteng arrived at the Treasury to the moment he got to his feet in the House of Commons? How did the Prime Minister and her Chancellor produce what even their friends call the trust-a-fuck budget? While the daily papers and the evening bulletins have been full of the mayhem in the markets, a gang of us at Tortoise, Sebastian Hervis-Jones, Claudia Williams, Kerry Thomas and me, James Harding, well, we've been calling government ministers, Downing Street advisers, Treasury officials and Bank of England employees, past and present, to try and piece together the fortnight before the fiasco. What happened behind closed doors in those first couple of weeks in Downing Street to leave people now wondering how many days Liz Truss has left in office? How did they come to make such catastrophic decisions on the national debt that has left the Prime Minister and her Chancellor on borrowed time? In this week's slow newscast, Britannia unhinged. Kwasi Kwarteng's takeover of the Treasury. Tuesday the 6th of September was an historic day for two reasons. At Balmoral, Queen Elizabeth II was conducting what would prove to be her last public act as monarch, bidding farewell to Boris Johnson. And ushering in Liz Truss, her 15th Prime Minister. Good afternoon. I have just accepted Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. Two hours later, at 7.07pm, a tweet went out from Downing Street confirming what everyone knew was coming. Kwasi Kwarteng was appointed Chancellor. Hashtag reshuffle. As she'd promised, Liz Truss had hit the ground running. Kwarteng was taken first to the Chancellor's study in number 11 Downing Street for the standard security briefing that is the first appointment of every new Chancellor, and he was then whisked across the road to the Treasury, where he immediately instigated his own changing of the guard. Sir Tom Scholar, the most senior civil servant in the Treasury, was removed from his post that day. This was a pointedly savage sacking. Civil servants, when they're moved or removed, typically see out a carefully managed transition. None of that usual kindness was extended to Tom Scholar. He was out with immediate effect. And he was not alone. Sir Stephen Lovegrove, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, was summarily fired too. There are, in fact, three senior civil servants in the British government. The Cabinet Secretary, the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury, and the National Security Advisor. As one former senior government official put it to us rather archly, She sacked two of them and left the wrong one, the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case, in place. Other Downing Street officials who had closely served Boris Johnson were also told to clear their desks immediately. Trust, they were told, did not want to see them in the building. Of course, the PM had not won a landslide election. She had the backing of the majority of Conservative Party members, not even the majority of Conservative MPs. But she somehow swept in as if she had a mandate for radical change. The old guard, 
all of whom she'd served with during ten years in government, were out. But to Treasury officials, it was much more than that. It was a signal. Tom Scholar's head was on a spike. For the time being, on that evening of September the 6th, only a handful of people knew it had been chopped off. The news that he had been removed in such an abrupt way, which, as one former minister put it, sent shockwaves through the Treasury, well, that wouldn't come out until nearly 48 hours later. Until Thursday, the 8th of September. The government was just beginning that day to roll out its plans to cap energy bills. But then came that commotion in the Commons. I wish to say something about the announcement which has just been made about Her Majesty. I know I speak on behalf of the entire House when I say that we send our best, best wishes to Her Majesty the Queen and that she and the royal family are in our thoughts and prayers at this moment. That was just after half past 12. In the febrile hours that followed, Tom Scholar sent a message to some of his close colleagues. At 4.30 that afternoon, he wrote to say that the Chancellor was looking for new leadership and he was leaving the Treasury immediately. With the benefit of hindsight, one of those colleagues thinks Tom Scholar was keen to get the news out because, like the rest of us, he had a strong sense of what was coming. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And he knew that the guidelines governing Whitehall would soon stop any sensitive announcements being made. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. It was half past six, Thursday the 8th of September, and by this point, one Treasury official told us he was just punch drunk on the day's news. There were signs that something like the sacking of Tom Scholar was coming. During the long Tory leadership campaign, a new enemy had emerged. It was no longer Ramonas or metropolitan elites. The enemy was right in the heart of Whitehall. And I'll also take on the Treasury orthodoxy. And one of the problems I think we've got is there's been an assumption by various members of what I call the economic orthodoxy mm. that Britain is a low-growth country. This whole language, John, of unfunded tax cuts implies the static model, the so-called abacus economics, that the Treasury orthodoxy has promoted for years, but it hasn't worked. What the hell is the Treasury orthodoxy? That was what one official asked us with real passion, because it was never spelled out. But if it could take human form, to Liz Truss at least, it would probably look a lot like Tom Scholar. His sacking was a signal that the new Prime Minister didn't want to hear what the Treasury had to say. The common thread is arrogance. This is what one former Treasury official says. He draws a line from the sacking of Scholar on day one to the blow-up in the markets on the day of the mini-budget. All the people in charge are advising are people who have been on the fringes of conservative thinking for a decade. The Institute for Economic Affairs, the Britannia Unchained lot, and the Taxpayers' Alliance. People who disdain the experts. It was quite a moment to ignore expertise and to fight consensus. Because, as more than one person has pointed out to us, we didn't need to rely on the markets to tell us what was staring us in the face. Urged on by all those fringe voices, what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were embarking on was the most radical rethink of British economic policy in decades. 
and they were doing it, relatively speaking, on their own. That was because the new Prime Minister and Chancellor had long seen Sir Tom Scholar as the epitome of the deep state, a one-man roadblock to change. He had all the attributes. He was the son of a venerated civil servant. He rose through the ranks in Gordon Brown's treasury. He'd spent years at the International Monetary Fund, drinking from the well of balanced budget orthodoxy, and he'd delivered austerity as permanent secretary to George Osborne. As another former government official explained, Truss and Quarteng, quote, think of themselves as genuine radicals who believe that what these people, i.e. the Treasury, need is a thoroughly good kicking. Eyes rolled at the way they went about things. One senior official told us the sacking of Scholar was childlike. It was, aren't I big and tough without thinking through the consequences? And with Tom Scholar, someone else said, it was also personal. Liz Truss, he says, had felt shut out of key discussions by Scholar when she worked as Chief Secretary of the Treasury under Chancellor Philip Hammond in Theresa May's government. And interestingly, Truss wasn't suffering from paranoia. The fact is that back in 2016 and 17, she really was shut out of key meetings. Key meetings in the run-up to the budget, critical Treasury decisions. The fact, though, is that Tom Scholar wasn't really to blame. According to another former Treasury official, it was Philip Hammond himself who didn't want trust in the meetings. He suspected she leaked. An official from the Theresa May government actually says that the Prime Minister herself at the time always felt that Gavin Williamson, Michael Gove and Liz Truss were the leakiest members of the Cabinet. And Hammond, in order to keep Liz Truss out of the budget deliberations, ruled that no junior ministers could attend. It was Tom Scholar's job to go and relay that decision to the then Chief Secretary. Years later, Liz Truss shot the messenger. Quasi Quarteng, of course, had also served as Philip Hammond's PPS at the time, a very junior position, and he knew well that Liz Truss disliked Tom Scholar. Personally and ideologically, he was also eager to have him out. Quarteng's friends liked to say that he and Truss had precedents. Gordon Brown and Ed Balls had pushed out Terry Burns. Margaret Thatcher had ousted Douglas Wass, the Tom Scholar of his day, who she saw as an obstructive Keynesian when she wanted to lower taxes and deregulate for growth. But as with so much of the Thatcher myth, this might be ideologically true, but historically inaccurate. Mrs T didn't sweep in and sack the top Treasury official. She gradually eased him out years after she got into number 10. The decapitation of the Treasury Civil Service left the most powerful department in government headless. Even before it happened, some people on the inside were worried that it was getting thin at the top, and you can see why. Charles Roxburgh, the other permanent secretary at the Treasury, and the top official most plugged into the markets, had left at the start of the summer. Catherine Braddock, widely seen as the number three, had left at the beginning of the year for a job at Barclays. As one former Treasury official told us, an awful lot of good people have gone. And the people who are left? They're yes-men, the willing courtier. The lack of the people, as well as a plan to deliver the new agenda, really troubled officials who were left inside. If you want bold, radical change, one of them told us, you need an organization which can deliver it, functionally. And that didn't seem to be in place. In fact, there were no experienced special advisers, either to sense-check the politics or the economics of the Chancellor's decisions. 
George Osborne had had Rupert Harrison, Rishi Sunak had had Liam Booth-Smith, Kwasi Kwarteng didn't seem to have any trusted or respected figure at his side. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example... For the 11 days that followed the death of the Queen, the government disappeared behind the shadow cast by the palace. Hello and good morning from Westminster, where Her Majesty the Queen is lying in state. Nick McPherson, the former permanent secretary to the Treasury, had taken the unusual step of tweeting out his disapproval of Kwasi Kwarteng's sacking of Tom Scholar on Thursday afternoon, just before the Queen's death was announced. Tom Scholar is the best civil servant of his generation. Sacking him makes no sense. His experience would have been invaluable in the coming months as government policy places massive upward pressure on the cost of funding. As Gordon Brown used to say, they're not thinking. But the message was largely lost. Kwasi Kwarteng, who'd originally planned to announce his emergency budget on the 19th of September, saw that date bumped by the Queen's funeral. It was rescheduled 
for Friday the 23rd of September. The Queen's death cast a blanket of quiet over Westminster. Political coverage disappeared. The Labour Party took a vow of silence. And the Chancellor was free to put in place his plans, largely unchecked by senior Treasury officials and unbothered by the usual speculation from the press, the opposition or lobbyists. Here's Lord Robin Butler, who served three Prime Ministers as Cabinet Secretary, speaking on the BBC's World This Weekend about the sacking of Scholar. Very unusual and uh, very regrettable for all sorts of reasons. Why? Well, if there was ever a time that one needed experience and continuity, which is what the civil service and which our, our system provides, it's now. We have a new sovereign, we have a new prime minister, and we really need the cement that can hold this system together. If scholars sacking had removed the only credible individual to challenge their plans, the decision that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng took next removed the only institutional check on their calculations. Richard Hughes, the chairman of the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, which independently scores the Chancellor's claims of growth, spending and revenues, had written to Parliament at the end of July. He wrote to say that knowing a new Prime Minister and Chancellor were likely to want to announce some kind of budget in September, that they, the OBR, were ready to produce a meaningful analysis of the numbers. While the Queen was lying in state, the OBR was informed that it wasn't needed. In the early days of Quasi Quarting's time in number 11 Downing Street, a Treasury official told us, it became common knowledge that the Chancellor didn't think it necessary to score this quote-unquote fiscal event. It wasn't a full budget, it was billed as a mini-budget, and at the time, he was aiming to get the scores in next spring. According to one official... Truss and Kwarteng wanted to have more time to persuade the OBR that their policies were going to have a big impact on growth. They won't persuade them. Kwasi Kwarteng is the most intellectually arrogant person you've ever met. The decision to sideline the OBR was the Chancellor's. One former Downing Street official told us, the OBR gave the Treasury a forecast, but they ignored it. That was an entirely political decision. The officials, i.e. the officials in the Treasury, are hugely frustrated, he said, having warned these guys that a fiscal event of this magnitude without a forecast would just tank. And there's a point here that's easily lost. Whatever the market response was going to be, this was never a mini-budget. It was a huge fiscal event, an historic change of economic tack. Truss and Kwarteng were rewriting economic conservatism, and in their minds, the quote-unquote anti-growth coalition had for a decade been enabled by their own party, the governments of David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Governments that, awkwardly, they'd served in. In the place of OBR analysis, the Treasury was tasked with producing an unusually slim report that, in effect, marked its own homework. The Growth Report. It was, by the count of one former Cabinet Minister, the government's fifth growth report. But it was, he said, mostly cut and paste. Within it, there was one table in particular that stood out. It's on page 28, table 4.3. And it's labelled illustrative effects on tax receipts of higher GDP growth. 
And it seems to show that five years after you start growing the economy faster, as Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng were promising to do, you could forecast an extra £47 billion a year in tax receipts. And that's handy, perhaps, when you've just given away £45 billion in unfunded tax cuts. Table 4.3 justified and distilled Kwasi Kwarteng's radical redirection of economic policy. Tax cuts leading to growth, leading to increased tax revenues. All in a way that was plausible, but entirely untested. In fact, the slide is mocked by its own small print, which says, quote, The figures in Table 4.3 are purely illustrative. They do not provide an assessment of what effect the policy package will have. Former Treasury officials damned it as flimsy, unserious, worse, magic realism. Cutting out the OBR from making an assessment of the mini-budget had a knock-on effect in the process itself. It cut out the Debt Management Office as well. The DMO, or the Treasury's Treasury as it sometimes calls itself, looks after the financing of government debt, buying and selling gilts. And as we've discovered in the past few weeks, it's a relatively obscure part of the forest until suddenly... It's not. In the normal run of things ahead of a budget, the DMO works with the OBR on the forecast that accompanies the budget so that the impact of the full package of measures goes under the microscope. If it's likely to cause a significant rise in interest rates on government debt, for example, the DMO would flag that up for the forecast. But then, that just didn't happen this time. That's not to say the lack of number crunching caused this. We've just heard from the Bank of England just now, uh, Jane, with uh, a rather extraordinary statement saying that they are planning a guilt market operation, uh, which is an intervention from uh, the Bank of England, uh, they say, to try to restore orderly market conditions. Let me just read out part of this statement, literally just in the last few minutes. uh... But there was no process in place which could have raised the alarm. In the weeks before Liz Truss won the contest to lead the Conservative Party and the country, Kwasi Kwarteng had started having meetings with people who had experience of financial markets and economic policymaking. Two people that he met then both refer to his self-confidence, both his confidence that Truss would appoint him Chancellor and his confidence in a libertarian, tax-cutting, pro-growth agenda. One former Bank of England official quotes John Maynard Keynes, Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. So if he wasn't being guided by the Treasury, who was Kwarteng's economic inspiration? The most powerful voice in his ear has, well, perhaps obviously, been Liz Truss. One former cabinet minister points out the way in which she put together the whole cabinet. She doesn't want debate. She wants them to deliver for her. And in that sense, Kwarteng set about delivery of what was her budget. And her political philosophy, according to one former colleague, is that to cut through, particularly as a woman, requires a clear, consistent message. He says that her thinking is this. Obstinacy is a virtue. Stubbornness is power. This is the way the lady did it. Liberate the markets, go for growth. She does not believe in a complex plan. In reporting politics... There's a magnetic pull to the idea that there is someone in the shadows 
putting words in the mouths of the principals, someone offstage pulling all the strings. And sure enough, Truss and Quarteng listened to their fellow travellers. Matthew Sinclair of the Taxpayers' Alliance was appointed Chief Economic Advisor to the Prime Minister in Downing Street. Here he is, a decade ago, discussing the moral case for lower taxes. Now, we talk about the economics of tax policy, we talk about various social effects of tax policy all the time. But there's also uh, that related question of the morality of tax. And is it fair, is it fair to be levying ever higher rates on people? Then there's Mark Littlewood, director of the free market think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs, and a long-term trust ally. Thanks for joining us for this joint Institute of Economic Affairs Taxpayers Alliance briefing on what's been one hell of a fiscal event day and a mini budget day. All looks pretty good, I think, from a free market point of view. We and back in the day, Truss had drawn inspiration from John Redwood MP. Here he is in 2016, speaking with the IEA about whether UK taxes are too high. And over the years ahead of Conservative administration, I hope we will have fewer taxes, simpler taxes, and taxes at rates that make people contribute more. Because one of the good things, I think, in the IEA's work uh, is that you're constantly stressing that if you put the tax rate up too much, you actually collect less money, and that, that is just stupid. In the words of one former Downing Street advisor, These were people who have been drifting around slightly crappy think tanks for the past decade and have finally got their hand on the levers and didn't know what they were playing with. But the role of the IEA and the Taxpayers' Alliance can be overdone. It doesn't take much detective work to discover the intellectual blueprint for the Truss and Quarting budget. They'd written it themselves. A decade ago, they had established the Free Enterprise Group, and together with fellow Thatcherite MPs Priti Patel, Dominic Robb and Chris Skidmore, they'd set out a vision tackling Britain's pessimism and the perception of its own decline in a book, Britannia, Unchained. It was a recipe for restoring the British work ethic, in their words, the lost virtue of hard graft, and unleashing Britain's buccaneering spirit by, among other things, cutting taxes. As they wrote, those in work are put off working any longer than they have to by the excess size of their tax bill. The book brims with historical references and flourishes that flowed from the pen of Kwasi Kwarteng, the historian. Kwarteng's inspiration was himself. Hello, I'm Kwasi Kwarteng from London, and I'm reading classics. Which museum is a painstaking replica of the Villa dei Papyri in Herculaneum, built on the West Pacific Coast Highway at Malibu and containing many world-famous works of art? Trinity Kwarteng. The John Paul Getty Museum. It is indeed. By the time Truss and Kwarteng arrived in Downing Street, the budget, according to one former cabinet minister, was all pre-cooked. In the second half of August, as Tim Shipman reported in the Sunday Times, the two of them, Truss and Quarteng, had hashed out their growth plan in Truss's living room in Greenwich and the nearby Richard I pub. One depressed former government official says it's like this. The thing about the British system is that the PM and the Chancellor can do what they like. But there remains a mystery, one that played out in the week before the Queen's funeral. From across the United Kingdom and around the globe, they came and they waited and they queued. A chance to say goodbye, not just to a monarch, but to a... Thursday, the 15th of September. 
It should have been the day that the Treasury closed its decision-making process and passed its fiscal plan to the Office of Budget Responsibility, giving the OBR a week to finalise its analysis. But without the OBR, the Treasury had most of the rest of the week to make any further changes or additions. So the question, the mystery, has been whose idea was it to scrap the 45p rate, the highest rate of tax? And when did it form part of the budget? Kwasi Kwarteng revealed it on the day of that mini-budget with a particular flourish. Take the additional rate of income tax. At 45%, it is currently higher than the headline top rate in G7 countries like the US and Italy. And it is even higher than social democracies like Norway. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr. Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. Yeah. From April the 23rd, we will have a, high, a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. This will simplify the tax system and make Britain more competitive. It will reward enterprise and work. It will incentivise growth. It will benefit the whole economy and the whole country. And Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker... But the cheers didn't last. It blew up politically. In the days since, it has been suggested that the 45p tax cut was the idea of Chris Philp, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Or, in fact, that it wasn't his idea or Truss's idea, but that it was Quartex. Can I ask you, Prime Minister, did you discuss scrapping the top rate with your whole cabinet? No. Do no, we didn't. It was a decision that um, the Chancellor made. That, says one person closely involved, is total bollocks. There is no way a Chancellor can slip in a measure of that magnitude without the involvement of the PM. On Tuesday the 20th of September, the Treasury's scorecard of the coming budget went to number 10. As with all fiscal events, the Prime Minister is asked to sign off all of the key measures three days before the budget. The PM, after all, is the First Lord of the Treasury, and it wouldn't have come as a surprise to her. As one person told us, they, Truss and Kwarteng, spent the last two weeks of the campaign knocking this thing together. I don't think there was much Treasury involvement. One of the ironies of the mini-budget was that it was sold to us as both small and enormous at the same time, a little thing that ushered in a whole new era. We need a new approach for a new era, focused on growth. I will lead a new Britain for a new era. One person we spoke to, who'd been at the heart of Downing Street a few years ago, thought it was smaller-minded than that. Actually, they said it was not much more than a checklist of policies that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng hated under previous Conservative Prime Ministers and couldn't wait to get rid of. Things like the 45p rate, of course, as well as the cap on bankers' bonuses. Although I should say, one of the country's leading bankers described that decision as idiotic. The government is considering removing a cap on bankers' bonuses as part of a shake-up of financial service regulations. Sources close to the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, have confirmed reports in the Financial Times that he sees removing the cap as a way of making London more attractive to global banking operations. The move on bankers' bonuses, though, was a kind of motif for Liz Truss. It was proof that she meant it when she said she would be the Prime Minister not just willing to do unpopular things, but almost revelling in them. So you're willing to do unpopular things if you think it can contribute to, to a bigger economy? That, that's right. You're prepared to be unpopular, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I am. And yes, 
Yes, she is. She's made herself unpopular faster than we've ever seen before in a prime minister. Unpopular with the public and her own backbenchers, who, of course, mostly didn't vote for her in the first place. It's unpopularity on a scale that matters. Because they've squandered political capital, goodwill and credibility, the smart money at the moment says that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng just won't have the muscle to open the door to their new era. It's possible, probable, a lot of people I've talked to would say, that when we look back from a greater distance at those 17 days, from Tom Scholar's sacking to the mini-budget, we might be more interested in what they tried to do than what they achieved. Because what's being tried is staggeringly audacious. Without a mandate, without evidence, without even the backing of their own party, the new Prime Minister and Chancellor are trying to press-gang the country into signing up for a completely new, risky economic model. It's possible, of course, that the smart money is wrong. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are still staking everything on their new era in spite of the setbacks. Perhaps one of their mistakes has been to rely on the fact that traditionally, taking control of the Treasury would have been like seizing the presidential palace in a coup in a faraway country. Just seeing it captured would put you halfway to victory. It hasn't gone that way in Whitehall so far, but the real fight goes bigger and wider than even the mightiest department in the land. As one senior Treasury person put it to me, this is a battle between ideology and pragmatism. Pragmatism has notched up the first win, but the war goes on. Since we recorded this episode of the Slow Newscast, there have been, well, a fair few developments. And you'll be Chancellor and Liz Truss will be Prime Minister this time next month? Absolutely, 100%. I'm not going anywhere. He, he's out. He's been sacked. So Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor, he's gone. But it is clear that parts of our mini-budget went further and faster than markets were expecting. So the way we are delivering our mission right now has to change. Excuse the bluntness, Prime Minister, but given everything that has happened, what credibility do you have to continue governing? What I've done today is made sure that we have economic stability in this country. Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor is somebody who shares my desire for a high-growth, low-tax economy. Perhaps orthodoxy is creeping back into fashion. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. It was made by Sebastian Hervis-Jones, Claudia Williams, Kerry Thomas and me, James Harding. Jasper Corbett was the editor and the sound design was by Mao Lucetta. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already listened, I recommend that you find Hoaxed, our brilliant new series from the team behind Sweet Bobby. It's a gripping investigation into one of the most serious British conspiracy theories of all time and the hunt for the people who started it. Just search for Hoaxed wherever you get your podcasts to listen today. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? 
we have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.